This episode is sponsored by Nexo.io and Quantstamp. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Michael Casey and Sheila Warren for the Money Reimagined podcast as they explore the connection between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, you're Sheila Warren. Welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Sheila Warren. Anyone who's been paying the slightest bit of attention over the past decade knows that society is struggling with a tidal wave of false information. Whether it's deep fakes, altered photographs, invented sources, or simply claiming a photo taken in 2018 depicts events that happened yesterday, it's become increasingly difficult in our digital world to separate fact from fiction. The world is moving so fast, and there are no longer clear, albeit intermediated, arbiters of truth. This problem has perhaps never been as starkly presented as it is right now in the midst of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, a project that hinges on Putin's capacity to lodge an alternate reality in the minds of his countrymen. Now, I'm old enough to remember a time when most people in America got their nightly news from one of a very few sources. There's no question in my mind that there are significant benefits to the current system in which we can hear from people with more authority to narrate what's happening in their own communities from their own lived experiences. On the other hand, this has clearly led to the ability of people to tune out what they don't want to hear and to a world in which sensationalists can thrive. At the same time, content moderation systems run by algorithms broadly overreach, with the result that Human Rights Watch noted in 2020 that nearly 11% of social media content it cited as key evidence in its work was taken down by algorithms. Groups from Amnesty International and Witness have all reported unprecedented levels of content deletion. Black Lives Matter activists regularly report that their accounts continue to be taken down or muted without notice or explanation. Ask any criminal justice attorney, prosecution, or defense, and they'll confirm that images are one of the most powerful ways to hold people to account. After all, who among us will ever forget the eight minute and 40 second video of George Floyd's last horrible moments on earth? Or the video of the woman in Myanmar doing aerobics blithely while tanks rolled up in the background at the start of a coup? Bearing witness is an idea that dates back to ancient times and played a huge role in the civil rights movement, as well as in human rights activism around the globe, continuing to today. Attempts to bear digital witness to try to create immutable sources of truth have met with their own resistance. Whether it's body cams that suddenly malfunction or live streams that are suddenly interrupted by choked network access, or whether it's vehement claims that images that are actually accurate are doctored or fake, we don't know for sure that we can trust what's presented over a screen. Our faith in the reliability of digital media is, simply put, broken. So since our listeners will already know where I'm going with this, let's just get there. What if we had a method for securing information in a decentralized, immutable, censorship-resistant way so we could be certain it was authentic and not doctored or fake, and we could be sure its existence would be retained in perpetuity rather than subject to the random whims of an AI, or for that matter, a dictator? Enter cryptography, decentralized networks, and the blockchain. Our guest today is Jonathan Doten, founding director of the Starling Lab, an academic research lab innovating with the latest cryptographic methods and decentralized web protocols to meet the technical and ethical challenges of establishing trust in our most sensitive digital records. It's a beautiful, important human vision and what I'm thrilled to unpack with him today. When I first met Jonathan, he was working with USC 
to preserve 55,000 archived testimonials from Holocaust survivors. I should also note Jonathan's a fellow at Stanford Center for Blockchain Research and the Stanford Compression Forum, and fairly recently wrapped six seasons writing and producing HBO's Emmy Award-winning series, Silicon Valley. No stranger to the power of storytelling is he. But before we bring in Jonathan, let's talk to someone else who knows how to tell a captivating tale, my co-host, Michael Casey. Hey, Michael. <laughs> that was a generous reintroduction. Thank you, <laughs> Sheila. How are you? You're welcome. It's true. <laughs> no, I've never written an Emmy Award-winning TV show, so that, that doesn't quite count. <laughs> well, you sure um, do know how to, how to talk about narrative. I mean, look, what a time we're in right now. Mm. I, you know, I already spotlighted and talked about what's happening in Ukraine and it, with Russia, but it's not the first time that an autocrat or dictator has tried to control media. I remember like, going through... You know, there's, there was this thing called Bitcoin graffiti. And, and very early on, people were realizing that you could write stuff into the Bitcoin code for posterity's sake. And people would leave messages to loved ones, that sort of stuff. And I was like scrolling through it when we were writing The Truth Machine. And I reached a point where there was a plea for help from somebody in Aleppo, Syria, in amidst bombardment of that city. And it just struck me so powerfully. Like, okay, there's this thing that Obviously, it wasn't an effective communication mechanism. You'd think you would reach out through some other means to the world. But this statement that I am here and that I matter just really, really resonated with me. And I've just often thought about this idea that dictators, one of the most important things they can do to essentially legitimize an otherwise illegitimate regime is to rewrite history. If you claim some false reason for your existence, think about you know, the election was stolen, for example. This sort of like Chavez sort of claimed Simon Bolivar as a, as a socialist, even though, right. of course, he died before Marx had even written the Communist Manifesto. So this is an integral part of authoritarianism to actually claim a truth that doesn't exist. If you have a record that, that is much closer to the truth that cannot be changed, I think it's really game changing. And how that works within all this technological construct is yet to be seen in the most sort of broadly effective way. But what Jonathan is up to here with Holocaust victims in particular is a very, very yeah. powerful manifestation of that, particularly at a time like now when this whole issue of human rights and, and the attack to it has probably not been at greater risk since those dark days of the, the Second World War. Yeah. Well, I think it's also really powerful at this moment in time in our educational system. You know, they say history is written by the victors. And, and I think we've seen a lot of effort on the part of certainly the American educational system, especially here in California, in my state, and also in New York and yours, uh, to be more nuanced about that and to say this kind of like concept, this elementary school concept that, you know, history always progresses in the right direction towards more justice and more truth is really absolutely untrue. And that we have to be thinking about, you know, who was not included in the telling of, of history in the way that I was certainly taught it. Lots more needs to be done in that space. So let's bring in Jonathan, though, and, and maybe Jonathan, start by telling us about Starling, first of all, and Maybe start with the work that you're doing at the moment in Ukraine. I think it's a good place to start. Thanks so much for having me. This is great to be here. And I'm a huge fan of the podcast. I think you guys are doing amazing work and basically explaining to anyone you know, why this type of technology is not just simply about a financial opportunity, but it's actually a fundamental re-architecting of the internet as we know it. So it's great to be here. Our work at the Starling Lab got inspired by this idea that what if at this new moment where the internet is being re-architected, we could bring stakeholders that are going to be the most affected by this from a human rights perspective. So we identified history, journalism, and law as our three areas of practice. And we said, what if we could bring all those types of stakeholders together and say to the technologist, let's try to create some prototypes 
play with this. Let's see if this actually works and then give you feedback and understand if those types of prototypes are actually the types of things we want to reshape the next generation of journalism or the next generation of history as it's archived and written. And then finally, for our discussions today, um, it was clear to us that lawyers had a unique opportunity in leveraging this type of technology because the, the project of justice is all built around this idea of trust, right? It's not about vengeance. It's not saying, okay, the more powerful entity goes and simply takes somebody, brings them to justice, and then let's say kills them, right? Instead, the project of justice is to say, we have a series of methods that establish trust among all of the parties, both the accused and the accusers, and then find a process in which that trust can be used to achieve the right type of outcome process-wise and hopefully, therefore, administer justice. So if you think about now this opportunity for decentralized trust, it's this really interesting moment because what we're saying is, hey, we don't want centralized platforms or centralized databases to be the ones determining how evidence is stored, as an example, right? We can use new decentralized protocols to really take trust and bring it to a whole nother dimension. And paradoxically, the more distributed things are, actually, the more you can trust them. And if you can bring that type of concept into the courts, that could be transformative, right, in, in the understanding of how justice could be administered. Jonathan, I want to pick up, because you mentioned journalism, and of course, as a journalist, I immediately, like, my radar pops up, and I, I want to discuss this. And I want to deal with this question of trust and, and truth. The, the book I was referring to previously, The Truth Machine, a lot of people criticize this for that title, saying that, you know, that this idea that there's some sort of absolute truth in a blockchain is absurd, because the ultimately, you know, you can enter whatever you want into a blockchain and so forth. And that's very true. What we were getting at with this idea of truth was that truth is in many, many respects is a consensus driven concept, right? The, proving the absolute truth of things is, is extremely difficult. And therefore, it is, in fact, this mechanism for arriving at a kind of a shared collective notion of truth. And I think that hinges on trust. But I have long fights with my fellow colleagues in the journalism profession about this, who I think inherently come with this idea that no, they are the arbiters of everything truthful. And that that's a certain important thing to protect. And I fully understand that because the challenge to truth is so threatening. And, and the challenge to the press that I feel extremely strongly about is also very threatening. But I do feel as if in this age, we have to arrive at a different mechanism for how we assess facts and how we arrive at them. So I'm wondering, like, long-winded way of getting to the question, what sort of a feedback have you had from journalists as you talk about this process and the use of this technology for this functionality? It's all about how you start the conversation with them. If you're, I think as you're hinting, if you're saying, oh, well, we're going to eliminate journalists and humans from the equation, then, I mean, people start to get very defensive, and rightfully so. When I think about it, and I try to explain to them, I say, look, a cryptographic hash doesn't just spontaneously come out of nowhere. At minimum, a programmer has actually put that forward, the one that's created the algorithm that makes the hash. Or in the case of many cases where, like, where you're talking about transactions, those things are initiated by humans. So humans are involved throughout the entire process. No one is actually eliminating. What we're trying to do, though, is to use technology to find a way to lower information uncertainty. And I know this is all sounding like really theoretical. And maybe your listeners are saying, oh, my gosh, this is we've taken a course now in philosophy or something like that. But actually, let me make this very practical. The reality is that today, because of the scale of the Internet, information is moving faster than it's ever moved before. And so we need tools to help us to deal with all of the uncertainty that comes with information as it's coming from all those different types of sources. So this is actually a very practical thing. The technology around cryptography gives us a chance to do two things. One is it allows us to find a way to authenticate the information. So I know at source, 
exactly what happened. And I can freeze that moment. I can lock in that moment. And then the second thing I can do is I can encrypt, which means that I can choose as the originator of the information, what I want to disclose and to who and when. And that is so critical because let, let me put this in, in terms in Ukraine that I think are so important. So there, we know this playbook of what Russia is now starting to do with the information warfare, specifically about covering up for war crimes. And the reason why we know about this is because for 11 years in Syria, they were very good at it. To give you a sense, when there were chemical weapons attacks in Syria, one of the earliest warnings that we had that these things were going to come was that you would start to see the field get primed with tweets, hashtags like Syria hoax, no chemical weapons being used. Those things were issued hours before the first bombs ever dropped. And what the Russians learned was that they could prime the field, they could get the hashtags out there. And then suddenly by the times the bombs dropped, the photos started coming in, the clear evidence that a war crime had been committed. Well, now you had a whole group of people that were already primed to say, oh, this is a hoax. And they were ready before the attacks even began. Just think about that, how crazy that is. So that is clear that we need new tools, right, to combat this type of misinformation that's being used. Now, let's try to think about this in the scope of justice. There has really been minimal justice in the case of Syria thus far. The majority of the prosecutions that have been held to account for members of the Syrian military to bring them to justice for war crimes has been done in domestic courts in Germany and France. And those cases have been few and far between. So what that means is that justice is going to take time to administer. And what we need to do is very carefully preserve evidence, not for the short term, but in case of Syria, it's taken over a decade and it's not even close to being done. So we're talking a multi-generational effort here to preserve this type of, but it's so critical. When we think about international law and the basis of it, um, I often go back to the Nuremberg trials. It established the basis for things like genocide were really first put forward there in court. And, and I want to read to you something which I, I found so interesting is this is from the Justice Robert Jackson, who was the chief prosecutor there. And in his opening remarks, he said, what we're going to ask you to do here, we will not ask you to convict these men on the testimony of their foes. There is no count in the indictment that cannot be proved by books and records. Mm. What they did in Nuremberg, which is like, it is the precedent for how we understand international law. They didn't prove it exclusively with testimony. They proved it by going to the records, specifically the records that the Nazis created to document their own crimes. That's what was so powerful about it, is that you had incontrovertible, raw, overwhelming evidence that this is what happened. But the problem in that case was that you had a centralized authority that was authenticating the evidence, right? It was <laughs> Nazi infrastructure, essentially, that had these records of the gas chambers and who died in them. And now we have this opportunity where we can kind of invert this from a centralized authority, the government, to now a decentralized authority. And in fact, curiously, the documentation is not going to come from the state. It's going to come from the people, right? So we have millions and millions of people that are affected by the war, and they are able to put forward that information as the incontrovertible evidence. And so we need to find new tools that are going to help us make sure that we can document all of this well, but now with the arrival of things like the decentralized web, we have this unparalleled moment to establish authenticity in a brand new way up until the point at which justice can be administered, which is going to be in, in quite some time. It's not going to happen quickly. Nexo is the go-to platform for all things crypto. Invest in the hottest coins out there and start earning risk-free interest of up to 20% APR, paid out daily. Need cash ASAP but don't want to sell? Use your crypto as collateral and receive a credit line at premium rates. 
Open your Nexo account by March 31st and receive up to a $100 welcome bonus. Get started today at Nexo.io. That's N-E-X-O.io. QuantStamp is hiring. Join the leading blockchain security company and help us secure the future of Web3. Working for QuantStamp means a fully remote, flexible environment where creativity and effectiveness are valued. Our clients include projects like Ethereum 2.0, OpenSea, Maker, Aave, and Axie Infinity, and we offer compensation packages on par with big tech. Learn more at quantstamp.com slash careers. That's quantstamp.com slash careers. Come join Michael Casey and Sheila Warren at Coindesk's Consensus 2022. It's happening this June 9th through the 12th in Austin, Texas. This is the largest and longest running event showcasing and celebrating all sides of the blockchain, crypto ecosystems, Web3, and the metaverse. And it's designed for everyone, crypto newbies, investors, entrepreneurs, developers, and creators. Come see amazing speakers such as Kathy Wood, Edward Snowden, Micah Johnson, and Amy Wu, to name a few. Use the code MONEYREIMAGINE15 to get 15% off your pass. Visit coindesk.com forward slash consensus2022. We'll see you there. Jonathan, this is just incredible. They say, you know, memory is short, evidence can last forever. But of course, that's dependent on the evidence, not someone not being able to destroy the evidence or alter the evidence. I remember my favorite class in law school was evidence. And so the same way that Michael jumped on journalism, I jumped on on the law piece of this and this concept of justice and, and how justice, it takes a really long time. Even if you're talking about ordinary, let's call it justice, not even a war crime context, but you're talking just about criminal justice. It takes a very long time. I know that there were so many, there's a reason that, you know, the trope is, of course, that Al Capone was eventually indicted on tax evasion because they couldn't get anyone to testify, you know, because they were so afraid, right? And so that was a more innocuous way of, of going about it. Uh, and so when you pause to think about that, what's the reason for that? It's not because it was easier to convict on tax evasion. It's because the fear that people had around documenting evidence in any meaningful way or authenticating even evidence that was pretty incontrovertible at the time of crimes was something no one was willing to do. And our, our legal system in the United States required authentication in this different way. So when you think about the ability to authenticate something using a system that cannot be altered or controlled or, or destroyed in any fashion, that is incredibly powerful, even on more of a day-to-day mundane type of, not that I'm saying the mob was mundane, but you know, even on a more uh, basic kind of level in the legal system. So I'd love to just talk about that intersection with you a bit and just the idea that do you think that the law is equipped to accommodate this kind of new method of evidence? And what would it take, both within the international law context or even just in kind of the criminal justice context, to be ready for that? Well, I, I think it's curious that the case of Al Capone is, is such a good one to bring because what did they really convict him on? It, it wasn't just the hearsay of him transferring money in certain ways that was tax evasion, but they needed a ledger, right? It's, yep. it's no different than the ledger. <laughs> exactly that right. Bitcoin, exactly. And so they, we needed a way to have a ledger that showed the flow of money and then to start to build a story about what those transactions essentially told us about the eventual you know, criminality that they proved. And in a sense, like the numbers, they say the numbers don't lie in that case, but I, I would argue that it's also that the numbers as they are stored and not manipulated. <laughs> If those types of numbers, <laughs> right, do, do not lie. And that's really what these types of ledgers are that we have. Let me just give you a really interesting perspective on this. It's just a personal one. Early in my career, the, one of the very first jobs I had was working for the United Nations in Sarajevo. And I arrived there on the eve of the second Iraq war. 
in a predominantly Muslim city as an American, this was not a necessarily the uh, easiest circumstance for, let's say, an American to be in at the time. People forget actually how, how much hatred there was of Americans at that point for launching a war that was very controversial. And yet I worked on a case that became a major corruption case. And the way that we established the legitimacy of that process as an investigator was by going to the numbers. We went to the bank accounts and we showed the fraud that basically was the essence of the corruption. We showed the beneficiaries, how much money they made, et cetera. And I, and I think that that's because we needed numbers to tell that story in a way that grows above the politics. And I think that's the same thing here is that we just need a different set of numbers. In these cases, we need essentially hashes. And those hashes are going to find us a way to establish a baseline for truth. So what are we doing? In our process, we not only have a set of legal tools that we're using, but technologies. And we have integrated 10 different decentralized web protocols to start to register information at each step as you capture, you store, and then you verify information. And it's pretty cool. We're using things like the Bitcoin ledger to establish an ordering system with an open timestamp. We're using protocols like Avalanche to register information or Litecoin to register information on their ISCN protocol. Um, we're using numbers protocol to find a way to actually syndicate the information across a number of different blockchains. That's all just for registering the information. So as fast as possible, we can say, here is the file and here's the metadata. And the second thing we're doing is we're looking at um, storage protocols like Filepoint and using that to orchestrate a way of preserving the information for the long term so that there are proper incentives that can last decades to hold on to this information. And then finally, as we're thinking about making the information available to parties that should have access to this information, we're using things like NFTs that are minted out of protocols like Avalanche or Polygon or Solana or even the Ocean Protocol. And the idea there is that you can use NFTs as a way of establishing custody and very clearly putting out a signal to the world to say, we have this information and we're making it available to trusted parties such as the ICC or the UN or whatever domestic court takes this information. And all of this, mind you, is, is pretty futuristic. We had a roadmap that was going to take us about six months to build this. We did it in about 14 days. We were motivated, obviously, by the opportunity to engage. We felt an obligation. And we also knew that these tools are really powerful. And so you asked about whether the courts are ready for this. I would say not at all, because the state of the art in the court is, is paper. Okay? Yeah. They need this type of evidence to be printed in order for it to be essentially admissible. So that's kind of the range. But that does not deter us. Because what we think is that there's a very important moment here to start to preemptively use cryptography now very early in this process, because we know that if the problems exist already with misinformation today, in the decades that it's going to take to achieve justice, those problems are only going to get worse. So mm -hmm. maybe we don't have a prosecutor in 2022 that immediately says, okay, I know exactly how to use this hash. But one would hope, surely, that by 2032, the prosecutor there would say, oh my gosh, thank God you did this, that you yeah. actually took the step to find a way to go beyond information systems that were so vulnerable and now to think about new mechanisms uh, for authenticating information. So we have to try to make that happen. I would bring you back finally to Nuremberg. You know, then when they used all of these documents and records, one of the most powerful things they did is they also used photography and film. And this is one of the, I think, the most haunting stories from that trial. That shortly after they began it, they actually asked the court to dim the lights. And for 90 minutes, they played this film, which showed evidence of the atrocities of the concentration camps 
as soldiers who arrived at the concentration camps found these sites of horror. And it was unbelievable to see what happened when the images started pouring into that courtroom. You had the senior Nazi leadership, 14 of the most powerful and feared men in the world, some of them reduced to stammering and to tears because they knew this was it. There was this powerful, powerful, powerful evidence that was just simply going to change everything. And we have that. Every day, there is powerful evidence that is flowing in from the field and it's being put online. And it's an overwhelming amount of evidence. And so we need to think about how we can actually preserve that to basically help render justice in that way. And I'll share with you, Sheila, I think you'll find this especially fun given your background. I actually got a chance to speak to the last surviving executor from Nuremberg. And I asked him to compare his experience using film in Nuremberg to examples like the George Floyd case, right? Which they were using also video recording at the wow. time. And he connected these two moments in history. And I'll, I'll just read to you what he told me. He said that the use of cinematic recording of both of those cases they are equally galvanizing. And here's what he said. He said they should be rightfully used to seek justice for victims, regardless of who the perpetrators of the crimes against them might be. The legacy of Nuremberg is that no one is above the law and the eyes of the world are watching. It was just unbelievable to have a chance to really you know, have one person link those moments in history. Wow. So if you think about that intent, why wouldn't you want to use the most powerful forms of cryptography to help secure that type of record? We know how important it is. So that's what keeps us up late at night. And we hope that as people start to understand Web3 and its possibilities, while there are many debates around the, the future of how this technology can be used for good and bad, I think now maybe the cynics have, uh, they're maybe a little bit louder in the room uh, than others. I certainly keep my eyes trained on the types of solutions that someone like Ben Ferencz, that prosecutor, reminds us of why this is all so mm -hmm. important. Wow. So, so what you're touching on, of course, is this very human element. And this is why the bear witnessing element that, that Sheila was talking about at the beginning, I think is very important is because we share this common humanity. And when presented with this irrefutable evidence and it conveyed in this powerful mechanism, which is what film can do, that part of our instinct takes over and justice is done, right? The human component of this. I don't want to be saying it cool because I'm right with you all the way on this, but I think there's also vulnerabilities here, right? Because we know as we talk about problems like deep fakes and the manipulation of truth, it is precisely the capacity to manipulate these aspects of our behavior that creates these adverse outcomes, that people will think and believe an image and therefore act upon them. This the very, very cynical fact that you are tugging at people's heartstrings and moving their emotions is really, really one of the most sinister aspects of this. So how are you thinking about that, right? Because the layers you've got here of the certification process, and then you've got the permanence of the of Filecoin, and you have that layer of the blockchain, you know, looking pretty good. But the, the human weakness component, which is always the most, the biggest vulnerability in any security attack and all those sorts of things, is as much of a advantage to that capacity to, to seek justice as it is also a weakness. What do we do? And, and I was also thinking, as Sheila was talking about, you know, Al Capone and nobody would testify, right? So how do you take the information that's out there and get people, vulnerable people? What mechanisms do we have to protect them? And also, how do we deal with the capacity to take this, you know, people talk about the liar's dividend, right? If you can actually make people believe that something is not true or true, you can distort that. That's the thing that, that keeps me up at night, you know, the layer between us and the blockchain. And all the stuff that needs to happen there 
so that we complete this record and can actually, you know, interact with it in the most constructive way. Yeah, I mean, the types of manipulation that are available now are obviously increasing in their sophistication. Uh, there was a deepfake video that showed Zelensky presenting himself as surrendering, and they were hoping that that would somehow trigger some form of chaos within Ukraine. And of course, people have right, very quickly identified as, as a deepfake, and that's just because it was so crude. But then, over time, mm-hmm. yeah, that's going to get only better and better. There's other forms of manipulation that people don't really think about as much. Capturing websites. We, we all assume that websites are out there and they will somehow be preserved and they'll be preserved intact. And the reality is that is not true at all. And so as we think about, especially ephemeral forms of social media, things like Telegram and TikTok, web pages, we, we cannot take anything for granted about how those things are going to be preserved. And, and frankly, to manipulate those things, you don't need a deepfake algorithm. It can be done within seconds just in your browser. And then you take a snapshot of it and you're on your way and then you can prove anything you want, digital record. So we are taking preemptive steps to use cryptography to first authenticate the information as fast as we possibly can using tools that have private keys and public keys to first lock in that information and establish at at the core a root of trust that is based in cryptography. Then we're allowing cryptography to start to allow users to, to make choices about what they want to disclose. So they may, for instance, want to keep their identity private and for good reason, especially as and when soldiers move into a territory, maybe the first thing they would do is look for people that are documenting war crimes, right? So they can use what would otherwise have been very important for evidence is now a hit list, right? So encryption and privacy is now a really important part of this process. Okay, so now once we have something, essentially it's locked in and then secure, we are trying to get the information out of the country as fast as possible and spread onto as many devices as possible. And that's where decentralization of storage becomes really important for resilience. And then finally, with the verification step, we're just ensuring that there's a structured process in which people can start to add context, add metadata, and find a way to, to build consensus around what actually happened at that time. So you should be very familiar to journalists because, of course, that's what they do. You know, there's building context is a really key part of reporting. Prosecutors do the same thing. It's just it takes time through an investigation. And so we're trying to build that evidence base step by step. I think that the message I would want people to walk away from all of this is that although we're really excited about the possibilities of what cryptography can add to the equation, all of it is being used to empower users and humans to start to do the right thing and to coordinate. As much as we would want to automate things, the reality is that there's still a human at the beginning and the end of all of these processes. And what we're really doing is just giving agency to those humans to start to make better and better choices. Because there is just no way to achieve, for instance, like things like persistence is still a very much a human activity, right? If we want evidence to remain, you still have to have humans that are paying bills to keep servers online, right? And even if they're paying it with cryptographic tokens, yet still, like the reality is that there are humans involved in that process. You also mm-hmm. mentioned something about content moderation. This is really important as well. So as you take in very sensitive information, Facebook and Google and others have started to realize that even if you pour billions of dollars into the problem of content moderation, you try to make the best choices, you can still fail. And so that's why coordination with affected parties so that we can take power from, let's say, a centralized platform to make and assume that they have to be basically all-knowing and perfect and instead start to empower communities, like let's say a DAO, to say, okay, well, let us find a way to coordinate and we can establish the rules about what we think is appropriate to preserve. And over time, our reputation and 
efforts that we're putting to make sure that this can last, well, we can coordinate that. We don't need to depend on Google's existence or Amazon's existence. We can actually have agency again to make those types of choices. And, and I think that's just what people miss when they start to get into these worlds of you know, decentralized autonomous organizations, like the A <laughs> becomes you know, the, the tallest letter in that. And I, I just don't necessarily see it as that we really need to think about values. We need to think about ways that people can coordinate on a shared understanding of goals and then to have feedback into that process. These cannot be automated. They are very human processes. And so I really would hope that you know, for the skeptics out there who are thinking about what all this could mean, that you really think about this as a way of strengthening the good decisions that people could make. One of the things that often occurs to me that these are about trying to foment cultural shifts. And, and if we create behaviors and habits that are seen as expected amongst all of our peers, we essentially shift our culture and the process are able to strengthen that whole information feedback loop to its sort of self-serving needs. If everybody is encrypting what they're producing and, uh, and, and anybody that's, that's doing good in doing so recognizes it as a fundamental contribution to our collective but, you know, use of that information, then anybody who's got something to hide who can't do it suddenly looks like, you know, like a glaring thumb is out there as something that is suspicious. You want to be incentivized to put that check mark against what you're doing. In the same way, I think like, you know, SSL certificates and the way that the little lock now, if you go to a website, it doesn't have a lock on the other. I'm going to go there. It might be perfectly fine, but we're creating these habits. And so I wonder if you could just sort of talk a little bit about that, about what, what's needed in terms of education and habit forming as part of this, because then it becomes a self-fulfilling benefit, I would think. Yeah, it's certainly a lot can be done. I'll tell you, it's a dilemma because one of the challenges here is that if you were just to put a check mark on a piece of evidence and just say, okay, this is it, this is verified. And, and all that you really knew was this little check mark it would be a shortcut to your understanding of actually what that evidence is. Because oftentimes, there's still a lot of manipulation that can happen. So even if you have a cryptographic record that has been secured, there, there's things you can do with staging and selective evidence and you know, a variety of other things that can just take something completely out of context. And then your understanding of it is, is just is broken. It's flawed. This is like the UX challenge of our time, right? Is how can we make things efficient? How can we boil it down into some sort of signal like a check mark that gives you some sort of confidence that what you're seeing has been preserved in an effective way, but at the same time that it really also gives you a way of getting more context and more information. This is really the problem is that the shortcuts essentially can distort our understanding of things. Part of what we've been exploring is ways of ensuring that basically can get some form of routing through this process. And, and I like to think about it like in terms of packets, like on the internet. The great thing about the way the internet works right now is that essentially every piece of data that flows on the internet has the data itself, and then it also has the routing. It's where it needs to go, and it doesn't rely on any other server to tell it where to go. It actually, each piece of information knows where it needs to go. And so we, we like to think about this process the same way, which is that what we want to do is take every photograph or video that we have and take the authentication information that we arrive at, and instead of putting it on always on external systems, we actually put it into the photograph itself or into the video itself so that no matter where you find it, you actually have all the information that you might need to kind of route yourself to some form of confidence. And that would mean that you would start to understand like, okay, wait, maybe I need to go and understand who has looked at this evidence as an example. And do I trust those parties? Well, if I had that inside of the photograph, that would actually be really powerful to understand exactly the validity of that information. So 
uh, we've been working with Adobe and Microsoft and a whole cohort of folks in an open source standards organization to find ways of injecting that type of critical metadata into images and video. And those include rich information around the time, the date, and the place. And then these cryptographic markers that can go and show, okay, and on decentralized ledgers, here's where you may find additional information. This is hard, so stay with me here. What we think is that if you can allow more information come in and support that information with reputation and some sort of context around the types of people that have fact-checked and analyzed it, that's the key is that you really want a diversity of views to start to validate and create consensus around all of this. In other words, you want to decentralize the process. You don't want one single ledger of truth that, check, if it's on this ledger, end of story, fact, forever, right? That is a super dangerous type of system because that's Black Mirror stuff, right? <laughs> we don't want one single ledger that is driven by a single centralized authority. So we have to be very careful with how we design these types of systems and these types of shortcuts. And instead, what we want is we just want multiple ways of verifying things, bringing as many different views to the table, and then allow for experts to help us discern that type of information. That's the key here, is that you really want to continuously decentralize the process and get as many different views to the table and have confidence about what each of them are saying. It might seem like a foreign concept to us, given our, our knowledge of information systems, but I'd argue to you that our kids and our kids' kids are going to start to understand that that form of networked understanding of truth is actually going to be the most robust way of doing it. I think of it in terms of this anti-fragile idea, right, that comes from this sort of a complex ecosystem. It's not linear. Once you create the linear, that's where the vulnerabilities are. But if there's just so many different points of fact and input you end up with a balance and it's just, it becomes irrefutable. And I think that to think of truth as something that emerges out of all of our collective input. Yeah, I, I get that. And I think that's flood the zone almost is one way to think about this. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's Rashomon, right? Like it's the idea that you're having these different perspectives that are all kind of triangulating to one source of truth and that you can create a self-contained vessel around each of those characters as in the film. But, you know, in life, you can kind of create this multiple means and methods of authentication of something that you can then feel very confident in its reliability and authenticity. And I think that's just an incredibly powerful idea. And one that kind of, it mirrors to some extent how our court system works, right? The idea that you have to have multiple forms of authentication around a particular piece of evidence, that's, that's just evidentiary law 101. It also mirrors, I think, human experience. If someone tells you something, depending on who that person is, you may or may not trust it. But if 10 people tell you their perspective on the same thing and they're different enough in slight little ways, but you're like, oh, that all kind of hones in on the, you know, 80% of that or 90% of that or 99% of that is kind of overlapping and true, you feel quite confident in that reliability, even if you don't necessarily have a personal reason to trust any of those purveyors of, of that particular content. But I remind Jonathan also, you know, we saw each other recently at South by Southwest and it was almost like there were two parallel conferences happening, right? There was the one that we were mostly at, Filecoin Foundation Centralized Web, you know, I was on a panel about uh, surveillance and a cashless society. You know, you were speaking about this, this work that you're doing and other things. Lots of very serious meetings around that. And then there was kind of the other conference with NFT shilling and, you know, celebrity DJs. And, and it was just a very surreal for me. I, I'm still I was really kind of shaken by it, by how surreal the distinction was. There's a tendency, I think, to talk about human rights and justice as edge cases, which I've always found deeply offensive. And if we're not designing for human rights, for social justice, for these concepts as core to everything we're building. Like, what the heck are we doing in the first place? But I will say, you know, having left South by the impression you would get if you were kind of at the main convention center 
locations was that, you know, the work that we all care so much about and the technology that we're also moved by, I would say, like in an emotional way, really moved by the potential of, I'm not here to put down any sort of, you know, interesting projects that are being done in different cases, but I would say the idea that you're reframing of NFTs as, as something that could be really powerful in this in the realms of human rights and social justice, I think are such a an important reminder, you know, of what it is, what is the nugget here that we are all so motivated by. So even more inspiring than I had imagined you would be. Thank you so much for your time today. For uh, Michael Casey, my co-host, thanks again so much, Jonathan Doten, special guest this week. And to all of you, our listeners and viewers at Money Reimagined, stay tuned next week for another episode. And if you haven't already, please do subscribe. You've been listening to Money Reimagined. Today's show featured Sheila Warren, Michael J. Casey, and guest Jonathan Doten. This episode has been produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau, with announcements by Adam B. Levine and additional production support from Eleanor Paul. Our theme song is Shepherd. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcast at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.